I think the new culture really embraced this idea of not leaving a number of years between the invention, the capital, and the enterprise. And in the intro, that was David Donovy. He is going to be our expert that we talked to today. He has a PhD and an MD, so we get into his story, how he's developed, how he views planning, and we get into the Cell Hotel as well, the Stem Cell Hotel. This was a fun episode with a, a fantastic scientist in the UK developing something that he hopes is going to change the world. And so you get to really get a sense of who he is, what he's about, and what he's working on. Tune in every Tuesday to the Learning with Lowell podcast with me, your host, Lowell, to hear world-class scientists, startup founders, CEOs, and authors, people who you wouldn't normally hear about but are making huge waves all the same. You'll understand them and their work by hearing their passion, laughter, advice, and hearing them, the experts, break down what they're working on so that you can learn, push the boundaries of your knowledge and understanding. Three quick ways to show your support and get unique, exclusive, and fun content is by checking out learningwithlowell.com website, our Patreon page. Even if it's just a buck, it keeps us advertisement free and subscribing. You have an MD and a PhD, so you're kind of, kind of an overachiever, but I'm curious, what does that background give you that you wouldn't have without it? So here in the UK, you have a lot of clinical uh, researchers that go straight from an MD into research, and they are really fast-tracked in many ways. So you happen to not have a clue about how to run a Western blot or any sort of laboratory experiment, but you don't know what a positive and a negative controls are, but still you're much more paid than your peers and you're kind of hated by your peers just because you hold this MD status. What I did actually was going back from scratch. So around the, the fourth year of med school, when I was in Sweden at the Karolinska Institute for an Erasmus Exchange program, which actually arguably is, is the single event that most changed my life. In, in those few months, I, I came back really thinking, I don't want to leave uh, patients in the ward over the weekend. I just want to leave cells in the incubator. And I want to have a clear understanding of how important it is to doubt things. In, uh, in a ward, you are really trained to be assertive in a sense and sort of in the lab the more you doubt and the more you question the sort of the, the, the more of a scientist you are so I really and also the the, the hierarchical structure is, is really different and it's much more fun in terms of the group of people you hang out with and compared to to a hospital ward at, at least in Milan that was my experience and so I, I came back from Sweden thinking uh, I'm just gonna go into research and so uh, around the last few years of med school I was generally blowing off the, 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 the answers on physiopathology, and I, I was quite, quite interested in that. But then the, the professor would ask me, okay, this is great, but how does the patient show off? And I would be like, sorry, I, I don't do signs and symptoms. I'm, I'm going to be a scientist. And, uh, and so this really formed uh, as, a, as an interest. So it was very natural to be continuing that. And so I was actually the first one from... Uh, medicine to do a degree in uh, the European Institute of Oncology in Milan, where I continued. Uh, uh, and I, I had kind of an internship after, after med school and did a PhD, which was an English PhD in molecular oncology. And I did it really next to, to the other biochemists and biologists. So down the trench of, of, of Western blotting and, and a lot of things. So I, I feel really good about it because I, I, I sort of would think that I have an understanding of the relevance in terms of physiology of the human body, but then I also get a sense of biology, and, and especially cell biology is really my passion. And it, it, it was serendipitous in, in many ways, but 
I think I stand by the choice of doing this, and I don't see that as an overachieving thing. I just came natural as as a sort of series of events that got me into both degrees. But what you're working on now is translating academia research type stuff into startups and making practical change in in the world. Why did you feel like you needed to do that versus I don't know your someone else like why why did you instead of like passing the buck and saying oh you know it doesn't exist in the world why did you say i'm going to make this my mission to start translating these things and getting stuff going more towards the end of a phd everyone was always talking about phenotype screening thinking that it was really difficult to do and um, and phenotype screening in a sense is when you look at different type of conditions that would make a cell behave in a particular way so, for example, you can, uh, you can overexpress a gene and, and, and you can overexpress a series of genes and then just pick the one that gives special behavior to the cell. And so I was fascinated by this idea because I, I was thinking that this could be... I was fascinated about the idea of connecting this to drug discovery and connecting this to, to cell therapy and, and, and really connecting this ultimately to, to patient health. So I, I did a postdoc here in, in the UK and I set up my own um, phenotype screening using like a model system. And then after that, I was jointly funded by Austin Smith, which is a big lab in Cambridge and uh, uh, University of Cambridge and uh, Stem Cell Sciences, which was a small um, startup that uh, was bought afterwards by Stem Cells Inc. And, and now Stem Cells Inc. folded. But, but so it, it was, again, it was, um, it was a position that was open uh, that I was very enthusiastic about because because I had to do a bit of both in that position. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I don't know if that uh, would have matured if I didn't have the chance to get that role. Do you have any overarching plans? Are you like the type that has like a plan and it works out, or are you? No, actually, I mean, recently there was an Australian comedian that had this this kind of uh, suggestion for at a graduation ceremony. I think he was given like honoris causa graduate ceremony and um, he was saying if you look too farther away then you you may risk to not notice the opportunity that presents on the edge of your viewing field and uh, I quite like this idea that uh, generally I try to think what I like to do maybe tomorrow and the day after tomorrow but but I wouldn't you live much much better if success looks like your happiness tomorrow and it doesn't look like I don't know, having done this and this before being 40 or 50 or 60, right? So in a way, all of that is artificial. And uh, I think quality of life in the deepest sense of the term is, is super important. It, it, it's something you should really focus about. And, and, and so work affects a big chunk of your day. And, and it's quite important that tomorrow you're, you're waking up doing something you like. That's fair. I, I... But, but I see, sorry to interrupt, I see your point about... Uh, uh, it's interesting, like how everyone. Some, I mean, there are people who see the whole world, for example, in light of a particular hobby they have. I, I remember this this Walt Disney cartoon in which Uncle Max Scrooge was able to answer all the history question of Donald Duck just by picking up a coin from the different centuries, right? <laughs> so, so I think sometimes it, it, it things that, that you're doing in one type of direction end up end up being very useful for for another activity and. Yeah, this is this is life. Mm-hmm. And innovation happens when you combine, you know, two or more things in, in a unique way. I think that's one of the things that maybe people think 
Yeah, and it's true. And, yeah. and actually, I, I think I think it's also important to always remember that you combine things that are not necessarily the most innovative thing in one field. Maybe you can pick third or fourth sexiest discovery in uh, mechanics and combine it with fifth or sixth uh, sexiest discovery in biology, and you can do great stuff, right? So it's not always the it's not always the edge that can often actually the edge is is a bit loose and can't be combined properly. So I think one of my strengths is actually knowing a little bit of several things rather than being a complete expert in one. So I can be, I can be bridging experts in different disciplines. We kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious, like how does the day-to-day of the cell hotel? The stem cell hotel, yeah. The yeah. stem cell hotel. At the moment, we are in a very interesting transition. So we, we have the day-to-day is a lot on, on building the infrastructure. So we, we spend time in making sure that the users can effectively access the devices and generate images. From we have, we have these big instruments that are virtually microscopes in boxes. So people bring their cells and uh, a little bit like uh, CCTV, if you wish, the cells get uh, observed by the instruments. And then with software, we can make sense of their cell behavior by analyzing the images. There's an element of serving the user and there's an element of building the infrastructure. And there's, there's a lot of um, uh, emphasis now in, in sort of shaping up our value proposition moving forward. But, uh, but um, a lot of the work is still research. So we have also uh, internal scientists at the Center for Stem Cell Regenerative Medicine to, to serve and we have to make sure that they can access the devices and do their experiments. What, what do you do at the Stem Cell Hotel? So the Stem Cell Hotel is a hotel for cells. So it's a place where scientists from academia and from industry can bring their experiments and they can bring their cells. The cells stay in our incubators. We get lots of nice movies and images and we can expose the cells to different environments and ask questions that the scientists want us to ask. So that there's a model where we can work simply as a place where the experiments are done down to the single session on an imaging device, or we can work much more involved with the users and, and sort of plan an assay together and tap into the expertise in uh, artificial microenvironments, data integration, stem cell biology and eye content analysis. Quite a lot then. What, why did you choose stem cells? Like what are the key things about stem cells that makes it such a, a pivotal part to all this? So yeah, we chose stem cells because of the Center for Stem Cell Regenerative Medicine. The interest of uh, the college is really to, on one end, study the biology of the cells and on the other to develop regenerative medicine and, and translational type of applications for the science we do. The key features of a stem cell are, in a way, similar to the, the kind of choice you're faced, whether you, you want to set up a family or learning a job. So a cell typically is trading off the capability to make copies of itself, which is called self-renewal, versus the capability to learn a function and to become a muscle cell or a brain cell or a blood cell. And so this is called differentiation. And then you have the range of possibility, which is a bit like the range of careers uh, that you can think of, which is called potency. So when a stem cell uh, starts a journey and, and, and the fertilized egg is the stem cell by definition, it starts simply making copies of itself. And later on, these different functions emerge. Generally speaking, there is a trade-off between the type of function that a, cells can, that a cell can uh, 
deliver and the range of options that it has open. So it's a bit like when you decide to become a bus driver, then it would be more complex to sort of change your career completely and, and get into another job. Does it make sense? Yeah, they're very versatile. But then at the same time, they can be very specific, if, if that's like a good summary. Yes, exactly. Versatile initially. Then the level of specialization affects the level of how versatile a can be. So for someone who doesn't know all that much about like this, like how interesting imaging is, could you kind of like unpack that a little bit? Because it's like one of the areas that I'm not as well read on. There's this thing that an image is worth a, a thousand words. And the way we see images and is very different from the way science have generally used them. So typically you, you pick up a very spectacular example, and, and this is very important for like public outreach. You, you can show that a cell is beautiful. You can show that two cells are fighting and maybe, I don't know, a, you, can, you, can, you can show a white blood cell eating up a cancer cell, or you can, you can send a message that is, is fascinating using an image. But, but actually, the, there's also a lot of data in images. We, we tend to consider the, the sort of amount of data that you can extract from an image to, to then count the number of cells that survived or uh, the number of cells that changed their shape or the number of cells that express a particular protein. And so more and more, there is uh, the field of phenomics, if you wish, which, which is uh, getting information about the phenotype from images mostly. Uh, and this, is, uh, this can be almost as big as, as the genomics, right? So a lot of our effort is in trying to integrate the two types of information together. In terms of, of how we do this, you can think of an image as an array of pixel, and so pixel intensities allow you to, to first segment, so first identify objects within an image, and this can be done in endpoint assay images, so in, in static stills, or it can be done in movies. And so, for example, one big problem in movies is to understand from one frame to the other whether the object you're observing is actually the same. And there are nice computer ways to, to answer these questions. You kind of touched on some of these things. I'm curious, like what, what type of tools and software you, do you need to like, be effective at doing these types of things, if that makes sense? Like, what, like if, you were, if I were to like walk into your lab, like what type of things do you have there? Because you said like a microscope in a box. Mm -hmm. You have software and then you have like some way like CT, CCTV type cameras. Yeah. I'm just curious, like what type of like, equipment do you use? Yeah, so they... There are a couple of very big, so we have two very big uh, industry types, so drug discovery type uh, devices. They look like a big table, really, a, a big box that would sit on a table and you open it. And uh, when, when you open it, you can put the vessel, so you can put the plastic tissue culture uh, vessel that carries your cell and you can lodge it inside the device. And then going on the computer, you can say to the microscope, just take pictures of the whole vessel hosting the cells at the resolution you, you would like to. And on the screen, you start having images of the cells that capture what's really happening on the well at a microscopic level. And the, the, the beauty is that you can use, for example, 96 wells or, or 384 wells, which contain different conditions. So you can test, for example, different drugs at the same time, or you can, uh, you can put different cell types. Or for example, like in the project we've been recently shaping up, we, we, we can 
test the difference between cells from one individual and cells from another individual. And so for that particular project, which is called the uh, HIPSI, Human Induced Pluripotent Stem Cell Initiative, we have been uh, looking at loads and loads of images of cells from uh, a cohort of dozens of individuals. And we've been trying to answer the question of whether cells coming from the same person are more similar to each other than a cell from one person and, and another person. I always think of like key images, like there's a this image of the planet from the moon, which I think is really beautiful. So I'm just curious, do you have any images like that, like any images that you've either taken in the lab or that you find very beautiful in what you do? Yeah, so early on, there was an image we called the butterfly because there was a, a colony that was shaped like a butterfly, which we used uh, also, I think it's still on the Twitter account for Hipsy. To me, it has the same type of fascination that, that you get when you see the, the earth from the moon. And more recently, we're doing very beautiful patterns using, it's a trick that sort of confines cells on a one millimeter circle. And then you, you trigger phenomena that simulate kind of early development on a dish. And so you have the patterning of, of the cells, which start emerging in a very sort of standard way. And yeah, that image is also, yeah, gives me the same type of thrill that you described. Moving to translating academia to innovation, what about that is, has been tough or like that you've noticed have been key roadblocks that you're having to work through? The current system is based on university tech transfer when you, when you start from an academic point of view. And the old model is that you, have, you secure IP and then later on you can think of getting some funding and you can think of launching some uh, enterprise and i think more and more and actually ben but also others from from deep science ventures have really embraced this culture more and more you you find uh, that you need to focus on, on on a very clear question and and you you you, you have grasp of, of a need and this is enough to sort of secure some sort of capital that helps you develop further ip so the the problem is sometimes this is the generational thing as well. So I've been, I've been talking a lot in, in different roles, not just at King's College, but also previously at University College London and, and at the University of Cambridge with the, the tech transfer offices. And very often there was this, this different way of, of seeing things. So I think actually this is why incubators are popping up in places like London which, I mean, I have very limited understanding of the, the West Coast of the US, which is clearly something we have to learn from. But I think the, the new culture really embraced this idea of not leaving necessarily a number of years between the invention, the need, the capital, and the enterprise, right? So the, the biggest bottleneck is to find somebody within the academic space who understands this, I think. Have you found them? Or, or yeah, or. yeah. We, we manage. We now we now manage to 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 really have people that now get the the idea. I need to say uh, just for the record, and like the, the stem cell hotel was something that was born with the Hipsy project, and it is a vision that Professor Fiona Watt has put on very early on of sort of how things can can work to get collaborative uh, phenotyping really to get scientists to come and check their experiment, check their cells in, in a dedicated space. It's good to hear that things are, are moving along. I, 
when it comes to like acquiring IP, this is something I've, I've personally never done. What, what is that? You just like go down to the tech office and you say, Hey, I want this. And then you give the money and then it's yours. Like, is that just like the, the equivalent of how that works? No, it's a very long process. And uh, uh, there's always these discussions with the IP office in some universities, IP office is separate, like in Kings in some, it comes in, in different offices like UCL was cut in a very interesting way. They had a, an office to help you start up an office to link with enterprise and an office would only license your invention. So, I mean, in general, it is perceived that university has more interest filing IP and then license IP rather than having people from university starting up. This is changing, but it, it's still largely true. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's a very complex process. There's a lot of questions that are useful to answer. So the scientists uh, do not think like IP lawyers, clearly. And uh, a lot of it is, is also very painful. <laughs> like, there's, a, there's a lot of back and forth. The most painful part is that, for example, when you, when you are developing some ideas, uh, there's also a lot of caution in, in how much the idea can, can be shared. And this is difficult to understand from a scientist's point of view. Like, for example, when you, when you want to publish something, you go to the IP office and you always have to sort of discuss what can be, what can be put out and what need to be uh, kept uh, for later. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a back and forth process between uh, people who advise you and the inventors. Is there anything that we can do to make it easier to, like, remove some of those headaches and, and simplify it? so that more people can do it? There's a lot of buzzwords about open innovation and, and, and the like. So in a sense, there, there could be spaces where uh, things are built before they are patented. And, and also, it's interesting in the drug space, some advocate for structures that are, for example, in, in cases like orphan, well, in cases, not orphan diseases, but in cases like diseases that do not have a market that is, that is huge. Yeah? then there is much more case for different entities to come together and, and work in a sort of non-competitive way together as a consortium. And, and there are interesting, interesting things popping up like this uh, that uh, could, be, could be taken as a model. So I'm kind of curious, you, you, you find yourself more advanced in your career than you know, people starting out. So do you, do you mentor anyone at all? And if you do or have considered mentoring people, like what type of advice and suggestions do you give those trying to start a startup and then those trying to navigate a career and, you know, move up the ladder and, and do more, you know, direction of things. So, yeah. So, I mean, I supervise people within my group, but, but I've been also mentoring people. There's a scheme at King's College where you are associated to, to a mentor and you can be a mentee for people who are in academia, but in other department. And this is very useful. Like I, I have my own mentor and, and we, we have regular lunches and, and I get lots of information out of this. And I, I have been involved in, in mentoring people in the college. But in terms of startups, yes, I'm, I'm involved with um, a few startups and it's still very early days. I wish to think sometimes I, I, I do give useful advice on, uh, on the logistics of sales or like the know recently I've, I've been asked a lot about ethics, but in terms of like how to go about things, but also I learn a lot from these interactions and uh, for, simply because they, for, for example, there was a, a, a case in which I was coming out of a, a long chat with Deep Science Ventures where they were really trying to focus what the need is and, uh, and then to sort of go back on what can be put on the table in terms of solution. 
And I came to, and just the day after, I was in, in a big university type meeting where people were looking at uh, liver cell therapy. And you can't help but thinking that if a laboratory has been working for 20 years on a, on a specific type of technology, then this is what they would want to put on the table in this discussion. Whereas I was trying to think, well, actually, if we do it the other way, we would think what cells should go in the patient and then how can we get that type of cell? And then in order to get that type of cell, what type of technology do we need to put in place? So I, I hope it makes sense. It was really like something that uh, would, would not happen naturally in university in the way it is shaped because, because you cannot do something that you have never done in, in your group, right? And, and so in, in big projects like this, uh, eventually you will always try to, to use your type of technology and to fit it in. Whereas, whereas in startup, although the, the resources are more limited, in startup, it's kind of working backwards, working from what's needed at the end to, to securing the little piece of a puzzle to achieve that. So, so I think, yeah, the, the two, the two sorts of process are very different. But, but it's, so sometimes, sorry, this was a very long answer, but it's kind of saying it's not only mentoring that uh, help people you're mentoring. You also get a lot out of uh, the discussions you have with your mentor. That's something I struggle with because I always think I'm bugging someone when I ask them for advice. But then I, I realize more, more often after the fact that they were completely happy having the discussion because then it, it sometimes raises questions in what they're working on. And so it's, a, it's like, yeah. A, yeah. Is there any, are there any questions or any like problems that you're facing now that like kind of give you like an existential crisis, like you're not sure how you're going to resolve them? Yeah, sometimes, for example, going back to, to this type of analogy, like we, we've recently think, we recently, I recently think we've been answering some uh, proof of principle questions about how to integrate the imaging data with the genomics data. But yet, this is miles away from, from actually predicting it as a model, and, and it's miles away from utilizing it in a sort of, in a sort of real-world way. Sometimes I'm, so, so, so my tension sometimes is like, shall I answer reviewers' comments to make the, the paper more solid or shall I really focus on building a machine that finds a drug when it's given uh, the right drug among thousands of them? And th this tension is, is what defines my days, really. But, and I'm, I'm, happy with, I'm happy with staying in the middle, but I feel it's, I don't know, some, some people basically send the message that I should decide at some point, whether I want to answer one or the other. So in terms of existential crisis, that's a little bit the question I'm facing. Shall I do elegant experiments and good papers, or shall I focus on machines that find drugs and characterize cells for cell therapy? Maybe there's an option C, where you can, do a you can prioritize based on your interests and then still do a little bit of both. Yeah. Like, you know, if there's yeah. one that you really like doing, then but you still enjoy the other one. I, I think sometimes like we're given these like A or B choices when there's, there's life, which has infinite number of possibilities. So you could go in any, so which is my, like, maybe there's an option C that would give you a little bit of breathing room and reduce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm happily in option C. What you're describing, there's, there's, um, there's a researcher called Yuri Allen who has been mentioning that there is a cloud, right? So, so sometimes uh, in his team, people, people come up to him saying, Oh, I'm desperate. I'm in the cloud because I can't. I can't move from the hypothesis A to the result B. I can only I can only stick in this sort of cloud. But he he says, well, you, you you're gonna find a, a result C, 
and then you're going to write it up as a result B, but actually, but actually it, it, it's creative. So maybe the doubt is really where, where you have creativity and, and what you're describing as, as, as a position in which you're not sure where to go is, is the place where you can find the best solutions. There's an author in America that worked with, his name's Neil Gaiman, and he worked with an author from the UK called Terry Pratchett. He wrote the Discworld series, and he did like this really nice seminar about how, like, how do you write? and be creative. And, and a lot of it is be bored and allow yourself to be stressed and you'll create your way forward because we're very creative creatures when we allow ourselves to be. But when we have, you know, YouTube or, you know, texting people and we're like looking for ways to distract ourselves, you know, basically finding busy work, like you're not gonna be able to work through those problems, which is some like for, for listeners, it's like if, if you notice like you're doing a lot of really busy things, but you're not making progress on the big things, you know, examine that because <laughs> it might be the, the getting yeah, in the way of your success. But so when you do feel uh, overwhelmed or even unfocused like what do you do to like realign yourself if you have any like cool strategies i tend to run quite a bit <laughs> like this is the actually my my routine is dropping my son and then running to work which which is really which is really like kind of refreshing sometimes my run actually is on a lot, a lot of it is on the thames so it, it's quite nice you you get you get the morning river run which is good mm-hmm. And also, you should come to see us. We are we're on the 20th floor of Guy's Tower, which is very close to the, the Shard, which is a big uh, shard of glass, is, is a big building, like the tallest building in Europe, a few months more. From our floor, which is the 28th of, of the tower, you get pretty much half the view of the Shard. And uh, the official view of the Shard is quite expensive. So you can always drop me an email and come and see the, the half the view of the Shard for free. Oh, excellent. I'm in America, and it might not. It might. It might be a while before I get to come to the well, UK. Uh, next time you're in London, you can you can just come. In. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll remember that. The, so the last few questions I have: Are there any bad recommendations you hear that you think people should pay less mind to? Or like, bad bad recommendation. Yeah, like so with these, like when you mentor, or like like you're helping startups, or you're helping people who are or going through their, or you notice people going through their career progressions and people give them advice like, oh, do this, this, and this. Have you found any that are like, don't, don't do that. That doesn't work out. <laughs> like, uh, I know most of your audience are, are more wide for the startup thing. So I don't know if this is relevant, but like on the academic side of things, uh, a lot of people are, are thinking in a very strategic term about the type of publication you have to have. And this is, this makes sense, but I think sometimes it, it blocks you in, in some categories. And, uh, I do not think that the, the impact factor of my publications matches the real importance in my mind of what I discovered in the different studies. So I think sometimes it, it's also important to, to understand that the two things are, are different and it goes back to what we were describing before. So if something really passionates you, this is more important than, than something else that maybe it's perceived as more valuable for your career in a strategic way. So I think I think there's a lot of emphasis on on being fit for purpose in in a, in a strategic way, but but ultimately you need to you need to be you need to be doing what you like. The way I think about it is, it's good to follow your passions, but try you know work to make them profitable. <laughs> you know, like uh, okay. like okay. use them to kind of navigate you through things. Well, actually, on on the door of the of the space that then becomes the Stemsel Hotel, uh, just on the corridor, on the door of that corridor. There is this quote that says, it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. <laughs> and it's uh, Dr. Seuss, who's a, a children's book author. So Fiona Watt has put that sign to sort of motivate us to, to make sense of the fun we're having. 
fun, fun anecdote about Dr. Schuster before I jump back into the last few questions. He was actually about to quit when he, he was walking through, I think it was New York, and he was literally about to like take a job and you know give up. But he bumped into someone and shared his his writing with them. And the person was like, oh, this is great. And he got him published. But he was literally about to give up, basically burn his work and go back to work. And now he is Dr. Seuss. And, you know, Jim Carrey has made movies about his work and it improves and changes children's lives. So it's, mm-hmm. I was thinking, it's, I, th- I think it's really interesting how like things happen at like the ninth hour in, in ways you never really expect. So kind of like leaving, leaving off with this question, uh, the last two is, are there any books, like either giving them a, a new perspective on life or been key in helping them better understand, you know, uh, stem cell imaging, for instance? Well, there's a lot of uh, paper. There's a great article by Ann Carpenter, so in the Broad Institute, which is um, called Increasing the Content of High Content. And I think if somebody wants to have an idea of what high content analysis, so, so imaging in vitro is, that, that's, a, that's a very nice starting point. She also has very good uh, YouTube uh, uh, long seminars so that lab is 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 really very interesting yeah this in terms of eye content i can think of uh on carpenter as, as a good way to start the real last question is i think i think you have a podcast there's a website but what are some key ways that people can you know read more about what you're working on and and learn more about this so yeah so we have the the project that we have all just completed is called hipsy so you can look up hipsy.org and you can uh, you can see a lot of information there. And the Center for Stem Cell Regionality Medicine has a, a Twitter account, quite some activities. We have we have lots of seminars. We call them stem cells at lunch, but actually people don't get lunch, so people are starting to call it stem cells rather than lunch. There is a stem cells at lunch digested podcast that gives a sense of the speakers we invite over. And King's is very good in terms of public outreach. We have a science gallery that opened up at Guy's Campus, uh, well, is opening up at Guy's Campus now. And they have a series of work, kind of combines art and science. We were involved in, in an installation called Utopia for Thomas More 500 years. And there's a video that sort of gives a sense of research in, in that sort of context. And you can always drop me an email. All right, and all those links will be found in the show notes, be really easily accessible. And hopefully those cool, beautiful images will be there as well. And that was Double Dr. David. We got into the stem cell hotel, what, why stem cells are so malleable and interesting for him. What about imaging? We got into what is beautiful. I mean, there's quite a lot of things we touched on. And if there's anything that you'd like to particular, please send it my way. Like it, it, It'll be something I'll forward on to him and, and let him know. And it really does help scientists to know that they made an impact. Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell this year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends, please and thank you.